I'm Shelley Schlender. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, February 6th, 2024. Coming up, we speak with Boulder native and wildlife photographer John Weller about his efforts to save Antarctica. There was a sheet of water that was just flowing through the entire colony, and it was filling some of these nests with water. It was coming from underneath them. It was coming down from the sky. It was absolutely heartbreaking to watch this happen. I was basically watching these baby birds die of exposure on film. It was almost too much. It almost broke my, my optimism. It's winter here in Colorado, but it's summertime in Earth's coldest and most pristine continent. Climate change is changing Antarctica. And last week, CU Boulder scientists released a new study warning that carbon dioxide emissions could make the acidity of Antarctica's coastal waters double by the end of the century. That acidity could kill off whales, penguins, and many other species. To get a better idea of what's at stake in Antarctica, today we'll talk with one of that icy continent's leading champions. I was sitting on the ice on a perfectly still Antarctic night. I was wearing a down jacket, down pants, big boots, and suddenly an Adelie penguin rocketed out of the water and walked over to me in bare feet. It was one of the most humbling moments of my life. The adaptations of these creatures are stunning. John Weller's award-winning photos and imagery speak for themselves. They also add greater meaning to words like these. From John Weller's documentary film, The Ross Sea, Antarctica. It is a grand play of checks and balances. And removing one actor in this play changes the plot entirely because the system itself acts like a single organism. And this gets me to the real point, the reason I had to see the Ross Sea for myself. The Ross Sea story is not just about fish, not just about the incredible organisms that live at the edge of the world. It is a story of interconnected communities. It is our story, the story of our struggle to become sustainable. And we need to take the first step. The guys at the Pike Place Fish Market, Southern Ocean fishermen, and you and I are all bound together. And despite the overwhelming challenges we're about to face, I believe that we can unite our efforts and write the next chapter of this story together. Really, it's our only choice. For the truth is that in the face of exponentially increasing pressure on our world resources, we all comprise a single community, and only in its balance can we find peace. John Weller is world famous for his efforts to save nature. He's also a Boulder native, a dad, and a friend of Boulder naturalist Steve Jones. Let's listen into the dad side of John Weller as he and Steve Jones join Boulder teen naturalists on a photography adventure at Arvada's Prospect Park. Quack, quack. <laughs> quack. <laughs> that was my camera clicking as I was taking photos. We are hiking along a creek. It's called Clear Creek. We're hiking along Clear Creek. It's an incredible community of ducks down here. This is John Weller. We've only known each other for most of your life. Yeah, 45 years. 
John is a superb photographer, but he's also an equally superb conservationist. So what he does now is photographs places all over the world and gets to meet the people. And he makes films involving the people. Great to see you, Annalise and uses them to help local conservation efforts. Tell us some of the places you've yeah, been. Yeah, I've worked in Raja Ampat, Indonesia, West Papua, Indonesia, Bahamas, Micronesia, and then I've spent maybe 20 years working on conservation in Antarctica and helped spur the creation of the Ross Sea Marine Protected Area in Antarctica. If you um, go to John's website, which I will give you all, he has four new short films about Antarctica. They're about 12 and a half minutes long. And they're really informative, but they're really beautiful. The last film, it will kind of break your heart. He filmed inside an emperor penguin colony that has been stranded by climate change. Actually, it was a Gentoo colony. And they, they're uh, on the peninsula. They're right on the front line of climate change. And there's more rain, there's more snow. And I was sitting in the colony watching it just pouring rain in Antarctica, soaking these chicks. The chicks had been born maybe two months too late because the snow had been on the ground so long. They didn't nest until later in the season. So there were tiny chicks and they were just shivering in the rain and basically dying of exposure on film. The nests were filling with water. It was terrifying and absolutely you know, heartbreaking. So you can check those out. He has two really beautiful large format books. The Last Ocean is about the Ross Sea and John and his wife Cassandra and the whole family, I think they all get credit, have been influential in getting an international agreement to protect the Ross Sea and they've declared it. What is it declared as? It's a marine protected area. It's the largest marine protected area in the world. It had to be ratified unanimously by 25 different countries through the Commission for the Conservation of Antarctic Marine Living Resources. Just so you guys know, there is a way to create positive change in the world, and we got to actually witness the dedication of this, the final adoption. And all of these countries are represented in Russia, China, Japan, Spain, on and on and on. Even the United States. Even the United States. And there was this incredible moment where they adopted the MPA, and this room full of international diplomats just erupted. And people were hugging each other. Nations were hugging other nations in this room. Adeli was there. She was two years old when this happened. Um, yeah, I was. <laughs> Adeli, what are you named after? A penguin. <laughs> She's named after the Adeli penguin. You can visualize the Ross Sea. If you can visualize Antarctica, there's just a big bowl. There's the peninsula goes up here and then it scoops all over. That's the Ross Sea. Yeah. It's a huge area. How many square miles? It's about a third of the size of the Gulf of Mexico. So it's a massive, it's a, a massive area. Anyway, if you have any questions about photography or ducks, John almost started out photographing wood ducks 40 years ago. That was your first passion, I think, one of them. It was, yeah. It still is, actually. I just want to be with these kids and have a beautiful morning and just kind of be inspired by this next generation of kids coming up and getting into nature. It's the biggest thing that we can do. That was John Weller on a hike with Steve Jones and the Boulder Teen Naturalists. Weller's photos and films 
have helped lead to some of the world's most important protections for Antarctica. I'm Shelley Schlender. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Up next, we'll speak with Weller about protections still needed for Antarctica. We begin at Weller's Boulder Studio as he opens a picture-filled book. John Weller, you just opened up one of your Antarctic books. This one's called The Last Ocean. Yep, that's right. This is the culmination of about a dozen years' worth of work. It's what brought me and my wife together. It's the defining factor in my optimism about the world because we got to see 25 countries agree to the largest marine protected area on the planet, got to play a role in making that happen. And it was a really special moment for both me and my wife. It has defined the course of my career and my work, this belief that if we really collaborate, that we can do things well. We can walk softly here. John Weller, there's a lot of ocean out there in the world. What is the difference between a protected ocean and the rest of the oceans? Oh, that's a good question. And I didn't really understand this when I started this project. It came to me through this scientific paper that was bestowed upon me by my friend Heidi Geis, by an Antarctic ecologist, David Ainley. And what he put forward in that paper was that the Ross Sea, Antarctica, was the last intact marine ecosystem left on the planet. What does intact mean? All of these oceans have water in them. They all have fish. What's the difference between an intact system and everything else? That's what I was to find out. What does it mean to be the last intact ocean? It means that we have intrinsically changed every other ocean ecosystem in the world with our industry. So runoff from industrial processes in the coastal regions, plastics, overfishing, which has plagued the almost entirety of the ocean. And then, of course, on top of all that, climate change. Fish Uh, farms. Fish farms. It goes on and on and on. Our impact on the ocean. As an innocent person looking out onto the ocean, it feels infinite. But the very opposite is true. It is extremely finite when we have put our fingerprint on the entirety of the world's ocean, even in the Ross Sea. So what David meant by it being the last intact ecosystem was a few things. The first is that because of the Antarctic circumpolar current, it's more or less isolated from the rest of the pressures in the rest of the world's oceans. It acts as a barrier, this massive current that's 100 times the flow of all terrestrial rivers combined, acts as a barrier to both northward and southward movement of different water masses of different species. It just doesn't mix with the rest of the oceans. It stays to itself. It stays to itself. The Southern Ocean is it has a pretty good protective shield there. But on top of that, the Ross Sea sported and sports a complete ecosystem where none of the species that are regularly in the Ross Sea have been overly exploited now or in the past. Now that is potentially changing with the advent of the toothfish fishery for Antarctic toothfish, which is sold as Chilean sea bass. Chilean sea bass is a made-up name. It was made up by a fish wholesaler, I think in 1977. Chilean sea bass is one of the most popular and delectable fishes that a person can get at a grocery store like Whole Foods. That's right. Is there Chilean sea bass 
fished in a responsible way? Well, that's a complex question, but in my opinion, no. It's an impossible fish to fish for sustainably. It's a deep water fish. The Antarctic toothfish finds its home in the Ross Sea at depths of up to you know 4,000 meters. That's, that's like Long's Peak. Well, 4,000 meters would be 12,000 feet. But down on the slope, on the continental slope, and then offshore on these deep sea mounts, it is a long-lived fish. It lives probably about 50 years. It doesn't start breeding until its late teens. And until recently, nobody had ever found a larval fish. Nobody had ever found an egg. So we had no idea what its natural history was, where it bred, how often it bred, how successful those breeding events were. So it was unknown, except for the fact that it is a deep water fish. It, it doesn't mature until later in its life. And that has all the markings of a fish that can be easily overfished. To my knowledge, we have overfished every deep water fishery that's ever been started and attempted. And here's another one, unfortunately. That's right. So now we have the most remote fishery in the world. You cannot get further away than the Ross Sea. It's extremely dangerous. People have died fishing for this fish in the Ross Sea. It's in the ice, and a lot of these ships are not built for that. These fishing vessels that brave their way down there, they have to be rescued from time to time by icebreakers. And it's all for what is termed white gold, because this fish, and this is the most amazing thing about this story, is that the fish, its adaptations to the cold are its downfall in the kitchen. It started off as a benthic fish. Did you just say a benthic fish? That's right, a benthic fish that lived on the bottom. It was heavier than seawater. Oh, benthic means it's on the bottom. That's right. As Antarctica broke off of Pangaea. This is that big continent that was all of the continents together. Many millions of years ago, when Pangaea, the supercontinent, broke apart and Antarctica started its southward journey towards the pole, it took along its entire shoreline. All the fishes that were living in the ocean around that part of Pangaea at the time made the journey south, and very few of them actually were able to survive. In fact, the notothinioids is this group of fish that started way back then and was able to adapt. Notothinioids? I say it differently from time to time, but I believe it is notothinioids. And what is a notothinioid? The original was a fish that existed around Pangaea around that time when it broke off. It made the journey south and then as all the fishes died out around it there were all of these empty niches and it radiated out. The evolution from that one fish filled in all the niches that were left to be filled around Antarctica. So there's a flock of species that surround Antarctica, that all trace back to a single ancestor. That is this group of fishes. And the Chilean sea bass is one of them. That's right. It comes from 35 million years ago. That's right. The original fish, it did not have to swim bladder, and so it couldn't regulate its buoyancy. So it would just kind of sit on the bottom and hunt along the bottom. Over time, as this radiating evolution took place, some of those species started to develop other adaptations to gain neutral buoyancy, including the Antarctic toothfish. And what it did is it developed fat deposits within its body, enough fat deposits so that it was able to lift itself off the bottom and swim out into the open ocean. Well, that's right. The Chilean sea bass is a very fatty, but deliciously fatty, omega-3 fatty acids fatty fish. That's right. 
it also makes it very easy to cook because as I'm told, you cannot undercook it. You cannot overcook it. It's very flexible as far as the timing of your preparation. So that makes it very attractive for restaurants. Well, John Weller, you help protect this part of Antarctica, this area of the ocean that's about a third the size of the Gulf of Mexico, this rare untouched or mostly untouched ocean. How long ago did you do that? Well, I started this project in 2004. 20 years ago then. Yep, uh, 20 years ago. And that took me through till about 2016 when we were able to witness this incredible act of global protection. Okay, so eight years ago, the Ross Sea, that's part of the Antarctic Ocean, one of the very few places in the world which hasn't had a lot of industry added to it. Eight years ago, you helped protect this and make it a protected sea area. Was that enough? Or are you still fighting? Oh, gosh, no. It's It was just a start. And, you know, it, it, when it happened... I believed at the time that this would be a linchpin, a turning point in our thinking about the importance of protecting the ocean for future generations. And you want to protect it not only just because you love the ocean, but because if anybody wants to eat a single fish, you have to keep the whole ecosystem healthy. Otherwise, there are not going to be as many fish in the ocean. Absolutely. I mean, the estimates are that we've eaten 90% of the world's top predatory fish since 1950. That means the tuna? That means tuna, that means salmon, that means every other predatory fish in the sea. Well, John Weller, looking at some of the movies, you have the short documentary movies on your website, I was distressed to discover that it's not only the big fish that are disappearing, but also the ocean climate needed for things like krill to be successfully surviving. You mentioned in one of your documentaries that the ocean's getting too warm and acidic, for krill, how many different fish and things would all eat krill? Everything eats krill in the Southern Ocean. That is the main prey species. That and silverfish account for uh, the vast majority of predation in, in the Southern Ocean. These are those teeny tiny little shrimp. Well, you, you can see them. They're a couple of inches long. Okay, a couple of inches long, but whales eat them. Yes. As an example, in addition to plankton, whales eat them, porpoise eat them, all of the sea-dwelling creatures that people adore. They eat them. They can't survive without them. Absolutely. Krill are the base of the food web, aside from the phytoplankton. The weight of krill, if you were to weigh up all of the krill, that would be the heaviest, the most biomass in one animal on the face of the earth. John Weller, at least for now, is the most biomass. You have been sharing in your documentaries that the warming of the ocean and the fact that the ocean is getting more acidic means that there isn't as much krill even, that there's other species that can survive better in a warmer ocean, like in the Antarctic, that are starting to take over, but they're not the kind that whales or dolphins or lots of fish can eat. Yeah, that's right. Krill have been declining and moving southward. And, and you don't mean south toward the equator. Oh, no, no. I mean south towards the South Pole. They've been moving further and further south in the Southern Ocean. This population of Antarctic krill is moving southward towards colder and colder water because the encroachment of warm water around Antarctica is providing issues. John Weller, even though you have helped to protect this area called the Ross Sea, 
you can't protect it from what's happening with the warming climate is what you seem to be saying. You know, this has been a real eye-opener. The last time I went to Antarctica, I did not get to the Ross Sea. I just got down to the peninsula. So I hadn't been down to this area of Antarctica for about 14 years. It was absolutely stunning. Everything and you don't mean like beautiful, like Academy Awards. You mean stunning as in heartbreaking. Heartbreaking. Stunningly beautiful if you count the waterfalls flowing off of each glacier they're not supposed to be there, waterfalls off of glaciers? No, that is absolutely new to me, <laughs> at least in that part of the world. Waterfalls coming off of each glacier. The glaciers themselves were colored pink and green because of algae growth within the ice. That's another result of warming climate. And those colored glaciers actually accept more radiant light, and so they heat up faster, so it accelerates the melting. You know, the Adelie penguins had been driven out by climate change. There had been great hope about the Gen 2. You know, at least the Gen 2 are coming in here. This last trip I took to Antarctica last January, a year ago. That's their summertime. Yep, middle of summer. It was raining. It was pouring rain in Antarctica. Not only was it pouring rain, the Gentoo colony where I was in Paradise Bay on the Antarctic Peninsula, the chicks had been born about two months later than usual. Got a report from the station master that likely the reason that was was that the colony was under snow for much longer in the season up until December. It still had snow on the ground. So that was part of climate craziness or weather craziness? Yeah, well, it's traceable, too. It's not just random. The reason there was more snow is because there's more evaporation from the ocean. And there's less sea ice, so there's more open water to be evaporated. And so you get these intense storms. Atmospheric rivers in the Antarctic. You know, the scientists in Boulder, the weather and climate scientists, have been predicting that that area would possibly get more precipitation for several decades now. But it sounds like one thing that's new is this thing where sometimes it's snow, but in Antarctica, sometimes it's not snow. Yeah, it was shocking to be standing there in the rain and watching these, these little chicks. They had been born too late, even without the rain. They were going to have a hard time surviving. Whether or not they're wet and cold, the winter is coming soon. In January, you only have a few months until it's pitch dark for six months. The temperature drops down to negative 20. So these chicks were already born at a disadvantage. There was almost no question that they weren't going to make it through their first winter anyway. But then to add insult to injury, it started raining and the chicks were still in down and the down was getting matted to their bodies and they were visibly shivering. Their parents were standing over them trying to keep them warm and there was a sheet of water that was just flowing through the entire colony, and it was filling some of these nests with water. It was coming from underneath them. It was coming down from the sky. It was absolutely heartbreaking to watch this happen. I was basically watching these baby birds die of exposure on film. It was almost too much. It almost broke my, my optimism <laughs> that, I, that I try to maintain. <laughs> Um, so right now we're looking at a sea level rise of up to two meters by 2100. Two times feet is like seven feet? Yeah, something like that. If that were to be the case, we would displace roughly a third of all people 
all coastal cities would basically disappear. Goodbye, New York. Goodbye, Miami. Yep. And some entire countries are already disappearing because of sea level rise. And that's just one of the many effects that the melting poles have on the rest of the global climate. Okay, so there's a lot of that that's scary and troubling. Yet you call yourself an optimist. Are you giving up now or are you still fighting for something? I don't think we have a choice. My last seven, eight years have basically consisted of talking to scientists about their work. The vast majority of people that I talk to, these amazing scientists, are optimists. That's because they know that we, humanity, have the solutions to solve the climate issue. If only we can agree on them. Right. If we can just agree on them, all the technology actually exists. It'll be expensive, but... It actually exists, and we, at the present moment, could solve the climate crisis if we all got together and collaborated. And what keeps me hopeful, my optimism, is a combination of knowing that and having witnessed 25 nations come together to protect the Ross Sea when it seemed like it was an impossible task to get that kind of consensus I get choked up eight years later, thinking of that moment, I start to tear up because it was so profound. It was a demonstration of the best that we can be. And that's what we have to get to again. John Weller is a Boulder native, nature photographer and videographer. He works for greater protections of nature, including Antarctica's Ross Sea, which is the world's largest marine protected area. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Joel Parker. This week's show was engineered and produced by me. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from John Weller's documentaries. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and hot links to the topics we've talked about today. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Shelley Schlender.